I'm going to invite Ron to come, and he's going to read our passage for this morning, and uh, that is 2 Corinthians chapter 11, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and beginning at verse 1. Let's stand together, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me, for I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the, the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way, we have made this plain to you in all things. Thank you. You may be seated. So as we continue our, our study of what it means to grow in Christ, um, I want us to, to focus in on really just kind of a picture. I want to kind of set the stage um, a little bit more. Last week, kind of gave the rationale for why and then introduced the first metaphor, um, and that was the metaphor of blindness uh, from Second uh, Peter. And, and now, as we press on today, we're going to be looking at the subject of marriage as a metaphor, but I want, I want you to see how this all fits, okay? So you have in front of you... Um, just some, some statements here. We just want to clarify uh, what these are just to kind of help us understand what salvation looks like, how Scripture talks about it as we kind of look at it systematically as a whole. First of all, we have what's called predestination, um, which is something that has taken place in the past. And here's where we get it from, Ephesians 1, 4, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. So there is a, there is a choosing that takes place in eternity past, all right? And that's the idea of predestination. And so our unity with Christ, our marriage with Christ, so to speak, even began back then before the world was created. Predestination, um, the God's plan of bringing us to Christ in eternity past. Other words that are used to describe that may be election, foreknowledge. Then the second thing here is um, justification. Justification is that that moment of your conversion, um, that, that, that moment of your regeneration, of your coming to Christ, um, it is that, might want to say, in your thinking, that point when you accepted Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, when new life began in you, where God breathed new life into you. Old things passed away, all things became new. It's that one particular point in time when you were declared righteous. Okay, that's justification. Um, then there is sanctification, and it's uh, basically over time being set apart to Christ. It's that idea of what happens then after my justification. I am progressively growing to be like Christ. Um, so it's becoming more and more like Jesus. Uh, use the word progressive sanctification, 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So in other words, just, in, in just one little steps and little steps along the way, and we're pursuing Christ-likeness. Um, 
Then there was uh, glorification. And glorification is that, that final aspect of our salvation where we will realize and receive everything that we are in Christ. And that is really fleshed out in 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you, did, uh, you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The salvation that's being talked about, this obtaining the outcome of your faith, is that final salvation. It's that standing in the presence of God, either whether it's going to be the rapture that's going to call you home or whether you know, death is the means by which you enter into his presence. That, that is the moment then of your glorification, that finality to your salvation. So visually, uh, we can paint a picture here, and you see this, this diagram. And we'll actually use this a number of times probably over the next couple of weeks just to kind of uh, make sure we have a perspective. But then there's, there's predestination that kind of goes way back in eternity past. Then there's justification. That's what you might consider at, at the cross, at when, when you accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior. Then there is this, this arrow going up, and it really shouldn't be a straight arrow. Um, and it should be kind of a, you know, one of these kind of things going up there, but I, I just couldn't do that for some reason on the computer. Um, but just kind of imagine it there, okay? And uh, the other thing is note that um, up here, um, note that it is, it is not separated from your justification. It begins with your justification. So the moment you are justified, you are also sanctified. You're set apart, but there is this progressive setting apart that is critically important, okay? If you separate that, then you have the old school thinking of, you know, I got saved, and then five years later, I dedicated my life to the Lord. And stuff. No, 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 no. At that moment of justification, you began your sanctification, okay? And then you have that final, whoa, what happened there? Okay, sanctification. Then you have glorification. You're being called home into heaven, and that's when you, you realize the fullness of who you are in Christ, okay? Now, the reason I have this, or painted this picture for you is because I want, I want us to make sure we understand what it is that we're talking about when we're talking about growing in Christ. What we're talking about here is what's called, you know, between the cross and the resurrection. It's this life between the cross and the, the resurrection. It's, it's how do I then move in this progressive sanctification um, in my life. I, I know I'm possessed by God because he has saved me. I know that he chose me in eternity past. And I know that one day I will go up into heaven. I think this is what we kind of began talking about last week was the fact that many of us know, okay, we're converted. We know that we're God's children. Many of us know that ultimately we're going to go to heaven one day, but we struggle with what does life look like between the cross and the resurrection. And that's why these, these metaphors are really helpful for us. Last week we looked at blindness from the perspective of if you do not add to your faith, if you do not progress like that, he says you'll be unfruitful, um, you will be ineffective, and you will be blind. That's the idea, that's the picture. All right? And so we want to avoid that. We want to make sure that we're not doing that. We, that, we're being effective, that we're being fruitful, and that we can see and see with discernment, and that there is growth that is taking place in our lives based on the, the power and the promises and um, the partnership that we have in the gospel. So um, with, with being like Christ. So um, that's, that, that image fits in here between the cross and the resurrection. Today we're going to talk about marriage as a metaphor, not marriage in the sense of teaching each other about what it means to be a husband and wife so much as the metaphor that is used to describe our relationship with Christ, also known at times as 
our union with Christ. Next week, we're going to look at trees, okay? Yeah, come next week, and we'll study trees together, okay? But as a metaphor to describe and help us understand what it means to grow in Christ, okay? And then we have a couple other uh, metaphors, but they're all describing this, this life between the cross and the resurrection. So let's pause right now for a moment of prayer and ask God to give us now wisdom and strength as we press on with this particular metaphor. Lord, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for the great privilege of opening up your word. And Lord, today as we, as we make our way through a number of texts, and Lord, as we park in one, as we tease out, Lord, what it is you want us to see, would you allow us, Lord, to, um, Lord, just to embrace what it is you're, you're trying to, to shape us with this morning. Lord, I, I am simply your messenger, and I ask, Lord, that you would you would fill my mouth, Lord, with the words that you want to say to grow your people, to strengthen your body, and, Lord, to equip us to be not only people who are growing in you, but, Lord, also people who are helping one another grow in you. And, uh, Lord, would you, would you do that today, we ask in your name. Amen. Now, let me just remind you that growing in Christ means far more than reading your Bible, lengthy prayers, attending church or home group faithfully, giving generously in the offering plate, serving faithfully when asked. All those things are all priorities that should be in your Christian walk, but they really are not the measure of whether or not you are growing in Christ. They're part of the fabric, but they are not the only thing. And if that's all you're looking at, you may have a misguided understanding as to your growth in Christ. Now, uh, we, we can do all of these things faithfully and still not be growing in Christ. That's the point. We can attend church. We can read our Bible. We can pray. We can pray longer prayers. We can fast. We can, we can do all those things. And there, there's a rightful place for that. But we can do those things and it truly not be evidence that we are growing in Christ. Growth in Christ has far more to do with the obedience of my applying what I know to be true than it does with my being faithful to the spiritual disciplines. So if God says something in his word, my growth in Christ is measured by whether or not I'm taking that truth and actually applying it, actually living it, actually doing it. Not whether or not I am just, you know, measured up as far as my spiritual discipline. So maybe we could put it this way. When faced with a sin or a trial, am I eager to seek the counsel of Christ? Do I see myself under the care of Christ? When I'm faced with a sin or trial, um, will, I, will I seek his care and counsel? Am I quick to, disagree, uh, to agree with him about my condition? Am I quick to be obedient and with his help apply what he has said to my life? Am I willing to endure his will? In other words, be obedient and apply his truth regardless of the fruit regardless of how other people will treat me, regardless of the effect that it will have on those around me who do not want to glorify God and who think that my obedience to him is somehow weird and strange or even offensive. Am I willing to do that? Is that what I desire to do? So today we want to look at the subject of marriage as this metaphor to help us understand what it means to grow in Christ. And with this marriage metaphor, there is going to be and we're going to look at the theme, we're going to then uh, look at the implications, then we're going to really look at the application of this metaphor to our lives, and depending on the time that we have, we'll maybe tease out some illustrations of what that looks like, okay? So let's begin then with the theme of marriage as a metaphor, and what we're going to do 
to begin with here is that we are going to go through some scriptures um, and just kind of kind of what we call biblical theology, looking through the Word of God at some places where marriage is used to kind of describe our relationship uh, with God or with Christ. And so um, uh, they're, in, they're in your notes, but let's just, just highlight them. We're not necessarily going to read all these passages, but we'll highlight some of the content that's there. Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. Here we find that this covenant with the house of Israel is described as God being their husband. Uh, Verse 31, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. So there we have this, this husband terminology, and if you have husband terminology, that fits into this metaphor of marriage, right? Husband, wife, marriage. Who are they married to? Well, God's saying, I'm the husband, Israel, you are the wife, okay? You, um, we're not going to read the whole thing, but the book of Hosea, you know the story of Hosea. Here is a prophet who is married, and this, this, this prophet is married ultimately to a prostitute. And he doesn't abandon her. He loves her. He pursues her. All right? He's committed to her, even though she continues to be unfaithful to him as a prostitute. And of course, that message is a message to God's people. This is what you've done. This is what our relationship looks like. You've walked away. I have not. And I will not. Okay? Romans 7, 1 through 4. Now, th- this image is a little different in Romans 7. Um, it talks there about us being unbelievers, first of all, who are married, but we're married to the law. And it is through Christ that that marriage to the law is broken so that we can be married to another, is what that passage says. Listen to verse 2 um, of uh, Romans 7. For a married woman is bound by the law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband uh, dies, she is released from the law of marriage. So he's using this as an illustration. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit to God. So it's just an incredible picture here to describe our freedom from the law in Christ. Then the book of Ephesians, and I'm sure you're familiar with this passage. We're not going to read the whole thing, but there he, there's this picture of marriage. Husbands, lo- love your wives even as Christ loved the church, right? So verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church his body, and is himself its savior. Verse 32, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and his church. The mystery is not something mystical, excuse me, mystical as we would think of it. It's a mystery is something that, that has been hidden, but now is revealed. And so this mystery now has been revealed, that is Christ now is, is this husband. Christ now is this savior. Christ is this gospel. That's the mystery revealed. It's a beautiful picture. 
that Christ is married now ultimately to the church. That's the, the, the image that is being portrayed there and being talked about. Then we go to Revelation chapter 19. Go to Revelation chapter 19, verses 7 through 9. Um, here we have the, the ready bride and white linen. I, I want to read this. This is, this is pretty profound. This is looking ahead. This is a beautiful picture. Let us rejoice and exult and give the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. If we're God's children, we, we are invited to this marriage supper. Why? Because we are the bride. We're there. We're celebrating. Revelation chapter 21, verses 2 and then verse 9, just again talks about this, this bride and this marriage metaphor. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Then verse 9, then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. Now, you talk about mixing metaphors, right? <laughs> the wife of the lamb, right? But it's a wonderful thematic bringing together of some metaphors to describe Jesus in his wonderful majesty as that lamb sent to take the sin of mankind on himself to be, to be slain as that sacrifice, to be married now to this bride, this bride who has been prepared and has been nurtured and has been cleansed and now is brought to this marriage. It's an incredible picture. Now, that's kind of just kind of a, a weaving of this theme through, uh, through Scripture. Let's focus in now on 2 Corinthians 11. 2 Corinthians 11. I want to kind of draw our attention now to one text. And um, um, just kind of, as, as you go there, I just want to remind you that if you go to the Old Testament, this kind of language um, is used quite a bit. That God is a jealous God. It's seen throughout the Old Testament. Again, that jealousy is related to this marriage metaphor where he's the husband. Israel, Judah is the bride. And so he's jealous when they wander. And just here, Exodus chapter 20, verse 5, you shall not bow down to them or serve them, talking about idols, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and of the children to the third and fourth generation. Exodus 34, 14, for you shall worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is jealous, is a jealous God. Um, you could go to Deuteronomy also, but we could also go to Joshua 24, verse 19. Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions and sin. There's this jealousy, but it's not a sinful jealousy. It's not the kind of jealousy you and I would experience. It is a purely holy jealousy, a right jealousy for that people that he called out for himself, that he loves and so that's why as we come to this particular passage in 2 Corinthians, even Paul brings up this jealousy terminology as he appeals to the Corinthian church. Now this Corinthian church is under the grip right now of what Paul describes as super apostles, false teachers, 
who have come and they've undermined his character, they've undermined his teaching, and they're trying to pull the Corinthian church away from Paul and the foundation that he laid, and they want to, they want to instill new ideas, twisted ideas, uh, based on what has already been taught. Now, the other thing to remember here is we're talking about the Corinthian church, right? Well, what do you know about the Corinthian church? I mean, that, the reason why we're Gateway Bible Church and not Corinthian Bible Church is because we don't want to be associated with the kind of stigma that Corinthians were under, okay? At the same time, though, the kind of things that they went through are pretty commonplace. 1 Corinthians is just, I mean, it's a book of, of questions and answers, questions and answers on very, very difficult topics. And if we were to know all the things that go on in the hearts of people within even a small church like, our, like ours, we would find ourselves very, very much like the Corinthian church and the kind of struggles that we go through, okay? It's just raw. But at the same time, that being the case and the kind of relationship that Paul had in pouring out that letter, he was very firm in that letter, 2 Corinthians, he kind of says, you know, I know I know this was hard. I know this was rough. And, and I, 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 I do not repent of that. I do not change. I just, I just want you to know that, that my motives were right and I, I wanted change to take place in you. And so I said what needed to be said. But now at chapter 11 and verse 1, um, this is what we find. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me for I feel a divine jealousy for you. Why would Paul feel jealous for them? Let me try and paint a picture. If, if I left Gateway Bible Church, I would be jealous for Gateway because I was all part of the beginning of this church. I poured myself out for you. And Paul was a church planter going into places, planting churches, building them up, ministering to them, leaving, and then as an apostle, giving wisdom and instruction to various people and to that church. And when someone comes in and tries to pull it away, he's jealous for it because he wants that church to continue on doing what, he has, uh, what God has called them to do. That's why in verse 6 it says this, even if I am unskilled in speaking, in other words, I'm not like these super apostles that you're wowed by, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way, we have made this plain to you in all things. In other words, when I came to you, I came and I poured out my heart and I laid a foundation for you. In fact, in 1 Corinthians, he talks about, you know, when I came, I didn't come with all this kind of superior kind of speech. I just, I laid it bare. Here's the gospel. Here's what it means. So he says, bear with me in a little foolishness. I feel a divine jealousy for you. In every way, we have made this knowledge plain to you in all things. So there we have, there we have um, Paul, this, this determined shepherd. He is not going to allow these false teachers to creep in and to take away this church that he's poured his heart into as being a faithful servant of God. All right? then, then secondly, we have Jesus now, the devoted husband. He says again, Paul says, For I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betroth you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. So the one husband here is Christ. And he is a devoted husband. But I'll, let's just think about this, this bride. The Corinthian church here is called a pure virgin. 
Does that strike you as a little unusual? I mean, this is the church we would say is the messed up church, all right? And yet Paul says, I present to you, you, to, you to this husband as what? As a pure virgin. In other words, there is this holiness, there is this change, there is this, this um, regeneration that takes place in the life of people who have been tainted and, and marred by sin. They are red, scarlet red with sin, and yet when Christ comes, he makes them white as snow. And when Christ came to the Corinthian church, he made them pure. That's the idea. Yes, even the Corinthian church. Well, it's just, this is good food for the soul, friends. If you have been living a life, and that life has been full of, of sin, you might want to kind of say, you might want to dirty kind of sin, the kind of sin that, that society looks down on, or you've gone made some really, really bad choices and decisions in life. You know, Jesus Christ comes and he takes what is, what is broken, what is filthy, what is dirty, and he fixes it with his gospel, he cleanses it with his gospel, and he makes you white as snow. Now, you probably know that. But now that you're a child of God and you're living your life and you make foolish decisions and you also allow sin to creep in and you maybe tarnish up your life with scandalous kind of things and you've got that kind of activity going on or maybe someone did something to you and you feel dirty and all this kind of stuff, this is the confidence that you and I have. That our cleansed situation, position in Christ has not changed. You are still a pure virgin prepared for Christ because you're not clothed with your own righteousness. And what I'm trying to get at here, sometimes we might step into a walk with God, but as we step into that walk with God, we continue on sinning. And sometimes we think to ourselves, we're so dirty, we're so filthy, even though I've embraced Christ, I just don't know how, if he could love me anymore. I, don't, I just don't know if he can accept me anymore. And guess what? He does. Not because you are those things, but because he's looking at you through the lens of his son, and what he sees is pure white. And we all need to know that. Because we all need to recognize that I am still what Jesus Christ has created me to be positionally. That hasn't changed. I am still accepted by him. I am still embraced by him. Now, yes, we need to work on that habit of sin because that's becoming holy. That's progressive sanctification. But I am already holy in Christ Jesus. So Jesus then is this devoted husband. The bride then is this pure virgin. And notice verse 6 talks there about this this is how they began in their relationship with Christ, their sincere and pure devotion to Christ. But at present, they're being led astray. And he's saying, you know, you, you, you started out as sincere, as pure. Now that's the picture of a bride and a groom, isn't it? Standing together at the wedding and ceremony. They're looking at each other, and they are sincerely saying their vows. I promise that I will. And I promise 
that I will. And I promise with everything that I have that it's all yours. And I promise that I will and I will and I will. And then I do. And it's pure and it's wonderful and it's heart to heart and it's great. And then once the wedding's over, the marriage begins. Life happens, sin enters in, and it gets contaminated, and there needs to be a kind of going back to the beginnings. But get this, that this marriage metaphor reminds us, though, that even though we're married, that doesn't necessarily mean that we're always going to be in right relationship. Our marriage status doesn't change, but we may need to change our relationship and restore relationship. That happens in marriage, right? So we have the bride, then we have the groom, Christ, the husband, and this is where Ephesians 5, verse 29 is helpful, that, again, that marriage passage there in Ephesians. It talks there about the, 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 that Christ nourishes and cherishes his bride in order to present her to himself without spot or blemish. I mean, he has already covered the bride with his righteousness, but even though that bride is covered with his righteousness, he is still nurturing it and preparing it and purifying that bride to present that bride to himself at that marriage. So Jesus here is the devoted husband that is just caring for this, this bride, this virgin as it is laid out here. Then we have Satan, the deceiving adulterer. I use that language purposely because of what's, what's found here in verse 3 and following. But I am afraid, he says, that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. It is Satan then that is the one who deceives. He is the one who is cunning. He is the one that leads astray. Now, it may not specifically be Satan, but it is one of his arms, his tools, his avenues through someone else. In this case, these super apostles are the agents of Satan that are deceiving and they are leading astray and they are using cunning to pull you away from Christ. So there's this marriage metaphor here. I'm married to Christ, but Satan comes in and he tries to pull you away. And notice what it says in verse 4. For if someone comes and proclaims what? Another Jesus. Well, I'm married to this Jesus. Yes, but you should be married to this Jesus. In other words, your loyalty needs to shift. Uh, another Jesus than the one we proclaim. If you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. And here, here's just the idea. Remember a couple of weeks ago we talked about pseudo a pseudo-Jesus results in a pseudo-gospel and results in a pseudo-kind of worldview. You have a wrong understanding of who Jesus is, you're going to have a wrong understanding of the gospel, and you're going to have a wrong understanding of how that gospel then applies to life. And here they're coming with this pseudo-Jesus and a pseudo-spirit and a pseudo-gospel, and they're cunning and they're deceiving. That means they're clever, they're manipulative, they, they know how to draw people in. And ultimately, they lead people astray. And, and Paul's saying, this is where you are. And it says here, <laughs> the end here of verse, uh, verse 4, you put up with it readily enough. What does that mean? 
It's, it's like they are happy to put up with it. It's, it's like they're saying there, there's this pride of tolerance, and this pride of tolerance is beautiful. And, and think about it, 1 Corinthians 5. Remember how they were boasting that in their presence they had this one who had committed incest? We are a church that has this person. We're okay with it. We, we tolerate these things, and it's beautiful. To, tolerance is the, the beautiful gospel that we need, right? So we have churches now that are all kind of all about tolerance. And tolerance is beautiful, but that tolerance undermines the truth of God. But they're okay with it. You put up with it readily enough. You're okay with another Jesus. You're okay with another spirit. You're okay with a different gospel. They are also impressed with the eloquence of superior wisdom. Aha. This person has a PhD or two. They are a reputable, um, credible, credentialed person as it relates to psychology and sociology and putting all those things together. Oh, we must, we must listen to them. Okay? And what they're offering is a pseudo-Jesus, a pseudo-gospel, a pseudo-worldview. Indeed, he says, I consider that I am not the least inferior to these uh, super apostles, even if I am unskilled in speaking. He's saying, I, I, don't, I don't have these clever words. I am not so in knowledge. And what I've communicated to you about the truth of the gospel, you know what, I communicated the truth. Indeed, in every way we have made this plain to you in all things. So here is, here is Paul his heart pleading, his heart instructing, his heart guiding, he defending himself, his character and his teaching because there are these super apostles, agents of Satan that are coming and pulling this beautiful bride, this virgin bride that has begun as, as a pure and sincere devotion to Christ and they're, 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 they're deceiving them and they're, they're being cunning and they're leading them astray. And Paul's saying, I am not going to put up with this. I am jealous for you. Friends, the reality is all of us are in this kind of milieu where there are people speaking to us. There are messages coming to us, and there are all sorts of, I want to say, uh, false apostles, super apostles um, around, and we, we, we can listen to them. And so what are some of them? And I don't want to shock you, but I just want to be honest with you about the tendency that we have to turn to people like this. So we... we, we we're looking for false teachers or people who come proclaiming a different Jesus, a different spirit, or a different gospel that we might glowingly tolerate for whatever reason, that impress us with some form of superior wisdom. So in our culture, here's a few that just came to mind. I didn't think too long on this, but they came to mind. People that, that, that people just like, well, so-and-so said something, okay? So Oprah Winfrey. How many times have I heard what Oprah Winfrey says? Hey, listen, you know what? I, if I met Oprah Winfrey and talked with her, I'm sure... There's some things that I would appreciate about it. But it's like, is she the ultimate authority on how to live? All right? Dr. Phil. Okay? He can sit on a stool real well. I know that. He can learn how to do that, right? All right. Dennis Rodman came to mind. I, you know? Of all the people I want to go interacting with a nation that has nuclear power, Dennis Rodman would not be the first person on my mind. All right? 
Barack Obama. He can do no wrong for some people. Right? You go a few years back, George Bush would be the same thing. I'm just saying, th these are the kind of things that we think of, right? Dr. Laura. Rush Limbaugh. See, I'm shifting over here, okay? Shifting over, balance time, all right? Rush Limbaugh, Mark Levin, go down the list. And so easily we can be caught up with other Jesuses, so to speak, that they become the ones that we're rallying behind. Oh, we're Christians, but this person, you've got to listen to what this person has to say because they've got it right. And boy, I'm listening all the time and paying attention. Did you read that? And I'm sending emails and on Facebook, all my messages are all this. Then there's this masquerading kind of false apostles within the church. Again, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking from a pastor's heart. Beware, 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 okay? T.D. Jakes, Kenneth Copeland, Joyce Meyer, anything on TBN, okay? Joel Osteen, good-looking guy, false teacher. Largest church in America, doesn't preach the gospel. Will not talk about sin. Specifically said that, Larry King Live, I choose not to do that. That's not my message. But then what are you talking about? Benny Hinn. Again, go on. My, my point is they're out there, guys, and they are pumping us, culture, American Christian culture, with voices and messages that are pseudo-gospels. The reality is that God is jealous for anyone or anything that takes his place. Sports teams, I'm just as guilty as anyone else. Money, 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 money. And I understand the times in life where it's just like money is really important. Cars, jobs, homes, cabins, hobbies, comfort, entertainment. So they can all take the place of Jesus being your Savior. They're pseudo-saviors. They're drawing you away from your pure devotion to Christ. Now, what are some of the implications, then, of marriage as a metaphor? What I'm trying to do is take, take all this teaching here and try, and try and paint a picture then. Or what are some things that we need to think about? First of all, um, there is this legal dimension, okay? There's this legal dimension. In marriage to Christ, we enter a new legal relationship. Everything, well, let's get this. When, when, when I stood at the altar with my wife, we understood, whether we actually understood, but we understood in theory because we said it. Well, I don't know if I said it because it's all in Spanish, but that's a whole other story. Um, <laughs> so that's my, my escape valve, you know. It's just right, all right, all right. So I'm in trouble now. Okay. <laughs> Everything that's mine is yours, and everything that's yours is mine. School bills, savings accounts, credit card debt, rickety old car, bad habits, um, 
all sorts of things. We, we bring into this relationship, right? There is this legal thing that takes place. And with that, you might want to say, it, it, from a biblical perspective, Jesus then, well, let's put it this way. Um, just thinking through this a little bit here. Um, what's that, um, oh, th- that show? My, 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 my family over here um, ha- likes a show called Say Yes to the Dress. You guys ever watch Say Yes to the you can, if you're a guy, you can acknowledge you've, you happened into a room and it was on Say Yes to the Dress, okay? It's all about the bride. It's all about the bride. It's all about the bride. And, and I just, I want to I change the picture because I think if we're looking at this from a, a biblical metaphor, it really would be Say Yes to the Tux. Because the focus, in one sense, right now is on Christ. Okay? It's, not that the, it's not that the bride isn't important. The bride is critically important to Christ. But Christ is the important one. Okay. Now having said that, we come into our relationship with Christ with all filth and dirt and mire and nastiness and sin and habits and attitudes and all that stuff. We come and we say, everything that's mine is yours. And Jesus comes into this, and he says, and everything that's mine is yours. Okay? Now, there's a difference here. If you put on some nice white gloves, and you go out and do some gardening, your dirt doesn't turn white. Right? Your gloves turn dirty. But when we come to a relationship with Christ... All of our dirt, all of our nastiness is touched by the righteousness and the holiness of Christ. All right? There's a sense in which we bring nothing to contribute to this relationship at all. He brings everything. But we do bring things. And those things are our sins. And when he comes and he marries us, we receive all of the blessing and all of the the garments of his righteousness that his father has declared him righteous and that righteousness then is transferred to us by virtue of who Jesus is. That is a legal aspect of that marriage to Christ. I bear his name, not my own. He will not abandon me because he is bound to me. Get this. I know in our culture, and I know even in the Bible, divorce was allowable, but Jesus will never divorce his children, his wife, his bride. It's never even a thought. Never even a consideration. You are part of his church. He is committed to the end with that church. And because you're part of that church, he is committed to you. And because he is now married to me and I am married to him, the father treats me in the same way that he treats him. Now friends, these these are all part of our legal standing. We have now become the bride of Christ. That's the picture. The second part then is a personal dimension. Personal dimension. There is a covenant that takes place between us. There's a, there's a promise. This is, 
This is not the kind of language that you would have typically in, you might want to say, the, the Near Eastern religions uh, of the day, a, a God that would be connected to his people. He says, I will be your God and you will be my people. And, and there's this perfect thing where you, you take this, this relationship between man and woman, husband and wife, and that then becomes kind of this, this understanding of this relationship of Christ and those who follow him. There is a personal relationship. In other words, I want to be near you. I want to be with you. I want to spend my time um, thinking about you. The Christian life is not primarily about not doing things or negation, but fulfilling the desires of our marriage partner. Thinking now spiritually. Since I'm married to Christ, what is my desire? Well, I'm going to do what I want to do. I don't care what he says. I'm do what I well, the reality is, Sometimes that's what we do, right? Our desire, ultimately, when we are reoriented, is to say, husband, what do you want me to do? How can I please you? How can I honor you? How can I make your name glorious? He wants what's best for you. You desire to please him in all you do. And so when you act, you act for him. When you think, you think like him. You long to be with him. And when you are with him, you are complete and whole and at peace. There's this personal, relational dynamic to this union with Christ. Now, this is important, friends, because if it's just a legal thing, then we can say, I'll say, boom, I'm married. I don't have to interact anymore. Okay? But there's also this personal where you're, there's the legal part, but there's this personal where there is this, this growing, developing, establishing relationship that is ongoing in this marriage. Then there's this aesthetic aspect. The aesthetic aspect. Now let's just face it. When, when, I, when I met my wife, I'll tell you this is how it all played out. I was walking down, I was walking down this path when I was in college and I kind of looked up and I, I sensed this wonderful personality kind of just flowing and it caught my attention. It's like, oh, you know, boy, this girl, this, she's got such a great personality. You're looking at me like you're really weird. <laughs> it's because I am. No, this is what happened. I'm walking, and I look, and it's like, whoa, Nelly. All right. <laughs> I mean, all right. So there, there. That's that's typically how it happens. Maybe not the whoa, Nelly part, but you know, there's something going on. There is something attractional. There's something aesthetic that is part of what what brings people together. Okay. I'm going to get in trouble for a lot of things today, <laughs> but that's okay, because we have a bunch of people coming to our house. You are my protection today, okay? All right. So at the end of the day, when people get married, it's that they are beautiful. It's that, it's that they're aesthetically pleasing to you, and there is an aesthetic dimension in our relationship to Christ. We are captivated by the one we worship. Now, get this. Does Jesus love his bride, the church? Or is that just kind of some theoretical thing that we bring up? Say, oh, this will help us in marriage. Jesus loves his church. He lavishes on his church. And we, because we are his children, are captivated by who he is. Psalm 34, verse 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, taste 
and see that he's good. Tasting, seeing, that's aesthetics. It doesn't say cognitively know who Jesus is. It's experiential. Taste him, see him, know him, love him, embrace him, enjoy him. So it comes from something more than know. Knowledge ultimately should lead us to worship, to adoring him, to praising him. Psalm 27, 4, one thing I have asked of the Lord that, I, uh, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the, all, the Lord all the days of my life. Well, sure, that sounds great, but the next part is even weirder in one sense. To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. You mean I'm going to spend the rest of my days just sitting and gazing at Jesus? Now think back to your college days when you were trying to woo that person. How many hours did you sit in the library waiting for them to come by, huh? When you got married and you were newly married and she was asleep or he was asleep, how, how long did you just sit there and, and look and take him in or her in? And see, there's, some, there's something about our relationship with Jesus is that we are captivated by who he is and the beauty of who he is. He is beautiful. He is worthy of my adoration, my praise, my enjoyment. There's an aesthetic side to it. And friends, sometimes we can be a little bit, you know, cautious. Well, we're kind of leading off into a way. No, no, no. He is absolutely adorable in a proper sense. It's to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. That is rich language, but it, it is describing this marriage metaphor, and it really describes this genuine worship. Now, those are the implications, legal implications, personal, aesthetic, and they're going to kind of play out a little bit now as we go to some of the application, right? The application of marriage as a metaphor. First thing I want us to see here is this. this. This idea of marriage, then, it drives a lifestyle of repentance and faith. And we know that we're supposed to be living by virtue of repentance and faith, but we have a better picture with this metaphor of what that looks like. Okay? So repentance, the idea then of repentance is giving careful attention to what I tend to live for other than God and then turning from it. See, oftentimes we just, we relegate repentance simply to turning from sin. But there's this first dynamic and that is we need to identify what is it that is sin. Or in this metaphor, who is it or whom is it that I am chasing after that is a substitute for Jesus or that I am adulterating my life with apart from Jesus? Who is it? I have to identify it before I can turn away from it. So what do you find beautiful? What makes you feel beautiful? What captivates your attention or dominates your imagination. It's either the beauty of the Lord or it's something else. Romans 1.25 says this, it's either Christ or creation because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator 
who is blessed forever. There's, there's, there's a choice. I'm either, I'm either worshiping, I'm either adoring Christ, I'm either in union with him and passionately pursuing that, or I'm in union with someone else or something else. And so I've allowed a substitute. I've allowed someone to creep in and to take the place of Jesus. And in this marriage metaphor, that is not good at all, is it? Well, I know you're my husband, but I, I have this guy over here and this guy over here and this guy over here, and so when I get upset, I'm going to this guy, and, and when I'm getting discouraged, I'm going over to this guy, and when I'm getting anxious, I'm going over to this guy, and, and these are all relationships of adultery because I'm not going to my husband. It paints a picture. And so repentance is then saying, this guy here is a substitute him and therefore I'm going to turn away from him and I'm going to turn to Jesus. That's repentance. Okay. So repentance is saying what is it that I tend to make more beautiful than the living God? Now it could be tangible stuff. Something you can touch, you can taste, you can feel. Money, cars, homes, things like that. It could be intangible. Comfort, success, acceptance, respect. Now, now there's there's nothing in there that I said that was wrong, but it's the priority. Right. Anyone here have a house? Anyone spend a lot of time working on your house? If you don't, come to my house and you can help me. <laughs> no, they're part of responsibilities. The thing is, which has the higher priority? Is it Christ or is it this thing? See? Is it my comfort or is it Christ? Is it my success or is it Christ? So there, there, there's an appropriateness to it, but the question is, where are they? It isn't that I need to stop this behavior and start this. James says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. There's the beginning of repentance. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. So there's this internal dynamic and there's this external dynamic. There's a change in the heart. There's this change in behavior that is necessary. So that's repentance. Then there's faith. Um, oh, I jumped ahead. There's faith. Um, faith is seeing the glory and beauty of Christ and turning to him. So here's repentance. I see what it is, and I recognize what it is, and then I'm turning away from it. Now, here's, here's the aspect that I think is important for us to recognize here. Okay? You, you, you don't have faith without repentance. Let me back up a little bit. I want to read this quote. I just I think this is helpful for us. John Calvin, okay, quoting John Calvin, book three of his Institutes. What he has to say here is just really helpful, really, really rich, and just read it with me and, and make sense of this as it connects these things together. We have given the first place to the doctrine in which our religion is contained, talking here about the, the, the doctrine of, of the gospel, union with Christ, receiving of grace, and things like that since our salvation begins with it. But it must enter into our hearts and pass along to our daily living and so transform us into itself that it may not be unfruitful for us. So it doesn't just go into the head, it goes into the heart, but it also goes out into practice. The gospel's efficacy, its effect, it, the way it fleshes out, ought to penetrate the inmost affections of the heart those would be the aesthetics, the core of who we are, who we are to worship. Uh, it should uh, take its seat in the soul 
and affect the whole man a hundred times more deeply than the cold exhortations uh, of the philosophers. So friends, it's just, it's just important to recognize here that, that it's one thing to know, but it's now our responsibility to apply these truths in such a way that they go deep into the soul, they wrestle in the issues of the heart, and they flesh out into our thinking and behavior. So now we move to, from, from faith to, uh, from repentance to faith, but now we're going to marry these two things together and just recognize that repentance and faith go together. You don't have one without the other because what repentance does, repentance sees what needs to, what needs to be uh, removed, turns away from it. And then faith kicks in by saying, the place that I need to turn is Jesus because I know he's trustworthy, I know he's beautiful, and then based on that, I go running after him. So faith is basically saying, I, I am resting everything I have on what he says about himself and what I know to be true about him, and then I go rushing after him. And when I go to him, how does he respond? He is there with open arms, and he is there to receive me as a husband. It's a wonderful picture, friends. Now let's just think about this on a practical level. Let's just say that you are looking for work and you, you keep on you know, putting your resume in and you, you have maybe two places that have taken your resume and they've said, hey, you know, we're interested in talking, you go in for an interview and they say, you know, we're looking at three other people and you know, we'll let you know and you know, about two weeks we'll, we'll call you and let you know where things stand and two weeks come and two weeks go and you haven't heard anything and now it's three weeks and you're kind of like, what's going on? You're kind of a little bit frustrated and you're concerned because you're looking for work and then it's four weeks and you're kind of getting frustrated. You call and say, is there any answer yet? And you're like, no, we haven't made a decision yet. Five weeks now, they call and they say, I'm sorry, but we've given this position to someone else. And part of you is wanting to say, why did it take five weeks? And part of you is ready to say, these bunch of idiots, why can't they figure out what they're doing, right? But if you had gotten the job, it's like, oh, you guys are so great, you know, all right. And, and what I'm saying is the circumstance in life is there and it creates for us then an opportunity to respond. And we fill in that response with either Christ or creation. With either Christ or something that is other than Christ. And oftentimes it's other than Christ. So when, I, when I'm angry with them now, I am not responding in a Christ-like way. I'm now responding to what I think should have taken place, and I have now to identify that anger for what it is. I need to turn from it, but I also need to see that even in my loss, that Jesus is still my Savior. He is still my provider, and I can trust him. And so in the, in the context, in the arena of the heart and the mind, all these things are going on, and I'm wrestling with this. I'm wrestling away from my anger, and I'm processing. I'm coming to the place and say, Lord, forgive me being angry and not trusting in you. I know you have my interests at heart and I'm going to trust you and I'm going to be faithful to you. And if there's any damage I need to go and do, then I go do the damage, clean up and confess my sins to them and restore it. But see, this, all, this is all going in the arena of the heart. And so repentance and faith are working together. All right, here's another scenario. You're you're, you've had a long day at work. In fact, you've had long days at work, and you're coming home, and you're thinking, oh, it's great. I get to go home, I'll have dinner, and I'll sit down, and there's a ball game on tonight. It'll be great. The problem is you have four kids. 
and because you have four kids, things have been chaotic at home, you are tired, and you're thinking, you're, you're right now, you're valuing something that is important to you, and it's the value of comfort. Now, anyone here not enjoy comfort? Um, if you would like, we can remove your chair right now, and we'll find out whether you like All right. We, we, we expect certain levels of comfort, right? And so it, there's, a, there's a sense in which it's understandable for someone to be working so hard and coming home and thinking, oh, I get to come home. And it, as soon as you walk in the door, it's like, rah, 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 rah. there's noise going all over the place, and you're like hungry, and you go into the kitchen, and it's like, where's dinner? I mean, nothing is laid out on the table, not even close to being laid out on the table. Like, what's going on here? And you start to get angry. It's like, don't they know I'm working hard? Don't they know I'm providing for them? And so you go in, and then one of the kids says, hi, daddy, and you're like, just get away from me, kid, you know? <laughs> right? I did some personal interviews to find out whether this is accurate or not, you know. No, this is kind of stuff, and then you, you start getting angry, and, th and the reason you're angry is not because you don't like the kid, or you don't like your wife, it's because you have been worshiping at the altar of comfort. And so anything that interferes with your comfort that you are demanding at that point in time, you are going to respond in a certain way, and it's not going to be Christ-like. That's where we live, right? So repentance then is like, ah, oh, means you're walking away from that kid that you've just kind of blown off. In your heart, you're saying, oh, Lord, this is not good. I have, I have not handled this well. I have been worshiping at the altar of comfort, and I need to be a husband, or I need to be a godly wife here, whatever the scenario is. And, and God, help me now to, to not just think selfishly. Help me to think about what you want me to do. So I'm identifying the problem. I'm repenting of it. I'm turning away from it, and I'm turning to Christ, and I'm seeing Jesus Christ as the one who says, I've given you everything for life and godliness. And so I'm saying, Lord, I want what you give at this point in time and give me perspective help me to see what it is i need to do and so i come running to him he embraces me this is all theoretical this is metaphor but he embraces me and my attitude now has changed and i seek out that child and I say i say son or daughter i'm so sorry i spoke to you that way it was wrong of daddy to do that will you please forgive me and you restore that and, and see this is all going in the arena of the heart and you find yourself then shifting over from sinful, selfish thinking and behavior to Christ-like thinking and behavior. This is repentance and faith. But this is all part of this marriage metaphor because he's my husband and I'm being restored to my husband because I wandered from my husband, but I need to be in unity with my husband so that I can live my life in a way that honors and glorifies him. Okay, a couple of examples. Secondly, it draws us to be wise and behold his beauty. This, this metaphor draws us then to a place where we want to be wise and we want to behold his beauty. Now, what is, what is wisdom? See, our, our understanding of wisdom is kind of more intellectual, but the word has the idea of beauty. And, and ultimately, how the word is fleshed out, um, wisdom is the the skill that is employed that brings forth something beautiful. Now, in the Old Testament, when, when God was giving instructions for the tabernacle to be built, he gave instructions to two men, Bezalel and Ohaliab. Oh, I'm not going to name my child that. All right. 
But what he did in that passage there was he, he, he says, I, I'm giving the ability and the intelligence and the knowledge and the craftsmanship so that these men can build the tabernacle according to my instructions. And so they did. And it was a creation of beauty, but it required skill. Okay? So wisdom then is the skill that is employed that brings forth something beautiful. So we can say that biblical wisdom is the skill of taking the truth of God's word, the gospel of Jesus Christ in its broadest sense, meaning all the benefits, and, and applying that then to life in such a way that it is beautiful. And it's this union with Christ, it's this marriage metaphor that helps us then to see what we need to do, and that ultimately it can be beautiful. But the world despises God's wisdom, what God considers to be beautiful. Turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Again, this is Paul speaking. And because of him, he says, you are in Christ Jesus, verse 30. Chapter 1, verse 30 and 31. Who became to us, this is and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. Righteousness and sanctification and redemption. These are all kind of like flowing. This is who Jesus is. So that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Why are you going to boast in Jesus? Because he is the expression of God's wisdom. He is the most beautiful expression of God. He's the wisdom of God, the ultimate expression of God's beauty. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 now, verses 7 and 10, or 7 through 10. And here not only we have Christ, we also have the cross now expre expressed as the wisdom of God and is beautiful. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. What, I, what no eye has seen, no ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. And ultimately, that is the cross. What did he prepare? He prepared Jesus, his son, to go to a cross. That for him was something beautiful. And so what we, that fleshes out to is this. There's repentance and faith, but now that repentance and faith produces in me now this desire to apply what Jesus Christ has done in himself and on the cross to my life. And so I trust and I rest on what he has done and I am I, obedient to it. And when I'm obedient to it, it ultimately produces something beautiful in my life. This is why I'm saying applying the gospel is really an act of skill and wisdom that results in something beautiful. When God says, I will take someone who is dirty and filthy and make them clean, that is beautiful. When God says, here's the person who's broken and I will mend them. Now, this is all beautiful language. Here's what's going on. Beauty, beauty, beauty out of horrible situations. Now let's just kind of bring this all to a close here. 
kind of where we began. Jesus, your husband, chose you in eternity past. Just think about that. He chose you in eternity past. He was thinking about you. Then Jesus, your husband, claimed you and clothed you with his righteousness. To the point where he just brought you to himself, says, you are mine. Oh, I had chosen you, but I'm coming to get you. And he finally comes and he possesses us. He draws us into his family. He makes us one of his own. He regenerates us. He adopts us. Just fill that with all these theological, this is what Jesus Christ has done as your husband. The third thing. Jesus, your husband, is changing you. He's nurturing you. He's he's working on you to be practically who you are positionally in him. So your holiness is not based on any works that you have done, but now he wants you to begin to live your life in such a way that your behavior, your attitudes are more consistent with who you are because you're clothed in his righteousness. So he is the one who's changing you. It's, that change doesn't come by self-effort. It comes by virtue of Christ's effort in you. So when Scripture talks about work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, it, it's the Holy Spirit who is working in you to conform you to the image of Christ. And then the fourth thing is this. Jesus, your husband, will celebrate you. That's the marriage supper of the Lamb. The bride and the wife of the Lamb will celebrate together and will enter into that city together. <coughs> Colossians 1.22, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Again, that's all talking about marriage context, marriage metaphor. The end of there, that passage, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That fruit of that wisdom applied there is the beautiful picture of maturity and growth in the believer. Now, friends, we are privileged to be married, united with Christ. And its implications are numerous. But see, simply reading my Bible and praying does not equate to the kind of growth that is pictured here with this metaphor, a growing relationship with a husband and wife, but a husband who was always faithful no matter what I do, but still wooing me and drawing me in, comforting me, giving me wisdom, giving me strength, giving me assurance that our union is fast and true, but he is at work nurturing and preparing us to be presented to himself. This is all going on in our progressive sanctification. Lord, help us now. As we have considered this metaphor, to honestly look at our own lives and 
to say, Lord, how do you want me to grow? How do you want me to change? What, what ways, Lord, do you want me to, to think about this metaphor? And Lord, I wonder right now as we are as we're coming before you, if there are those that are thinking and just dwelling on the fact that they feel dirty, they feel filthy, maybe because of something they have done or something that someone has done to them, would you, Lord, allow them to see the beauty of the fact that they are clothed in white because of the righteousness, Lord, that you have placed over them, that you love them, that you haven't abandoned them, that any distance between you and them is not because of you, it's because of them not willing to trust that you truly still faithfully love them. Lord, as, as we consider maybe ways that we have behaved or ways that we have, have misbehaved with people that we love, Lord, would you help us to repent, see it, turn away from it, see Christ as the answer and to go running to him, Lord, by faith. Lord, we need you, we love you, and that we're humbled that we have you as our Lord and Savior. Thank you, Lord, for all that you do in us. In your name.